0: This message, is moving Moving This message, is moving Moving This message, is moving Moving This message, is moving It's Beat right.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Message is Moving, where we break generation curses every day. Today, we're talking about breaking the generation curse of juvenile delinquency. In 10 years, the United States has cut youth incarceration in half. While the reduction is impressive, youth involvement in the juvenile justice system continues to impact youth of color disproportionately. In every state, black youth are more likely to be incarcerated than, than their white peers, about five times as likely nationwide. American Indian youth are three times as likely to be incarcerated as their white peers and for Latin youth disparities are smaller but still prevalent. Latin youth are 42% more likely than their white peers to be incarcerated. After arrest, youth of color are more likely to be detained, pre-adjudication, and committed post-adjudication. They are also less likely to be diverted into the system. These patterns hold across a range of offenses and this is something that appears to be an issue ever since this data has been recorded. And this is a source from sentencingproject.org. So, who better to have meaningful dialogue with than a regular face of the messages <laughs> moving? I call her my political princess, <laughs> Advocate Ashley.
0: I Ashley love I- <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I love my new titles. Well, hello, hello, everyone. I'm glad to be back.
1: You earn those titles, though. Thank you. I appreciate that. You definitely did. So usually I'm the one to bring the subject to Ashley and we we discuss it as as such. But I actually reached out to Ashley this time. and asked, hey, what is things that are generation curses or kind of issues that plague our community that we can really address and try to correct? And you actually brought up the subject and when I did a little bit of research on it, I was like, this is definitely a great way, but I'm definitely going to lean towards you. So yeah. when did you became aware of this being generation curse or being aware of how disproportionate? I mean, I'm I'm sure it's not something that's hard to imagine. Right. But when you really dived into juvenile delinquency and being aware of it, um, how did that came about?
0: Sure. So, um Well, as you probably know, or I believe I've stated it in previous episodes, that my profession is in child advocacy. Um, So I work very closely with the family court system, um, in which case, and and as well as I've um, been within the school system. Um, So in which case, I deal with a lot of children who have also been involved or had DJJ involvement, Department of Juvenile Justice involvement. Um, so as a social worker, um, a lot of my research that I focused on was, uh, racial disparities among children, among youth. Um, so kind of like all of those things ha- is what got me, uh, interested in looking into, um, children considered to be delinquent. So my profession and educational experience.
1: Got it. And I'm sure you've seen so many cases, um, where it definitely hits you a different way, especially you being a mother yourself, right?
0: Absolutely. As well as my own school experiences. So as well as everybody, you know, all the things that's happening, you know, in the media with children who are arrested or, you know, you've seen the videos of law enforcement tackling children and, you know, harming them. So all of those things and just kind of, you know, looking into deeper as far as, How does this become an issue for society? How does this become an issue as a family? How do I protect my own children, like you said, as as they enter school or navigate through school?
1: Got it. And more statistics or research that kind of back up that point. A survey by the Annie E. Casey Foundation of (laughs) Youth Justice Agencies finds the population of black youth and juvenile detention on February 1st, 2021, reached a pandemic high while that of white youth was the second lowest recorded in more than a year. This survey conducted each month since the pandemic began in March, 2020. And this is aimed at assessing the effects of coronavirus pandemic on juvenile justice systems around the country. Population of black and Latino youth grew 14% and 2% respectively from May 1st, 2020 through February 1st, 2021. While the population of white, non-Latino and youth fell 6%. Overall, the youth detention population rose by more than 6% from May 1st to February 1st. Driven by a Black and Latino youth lingering longer in attention. So that's the numbers to back it up. We're not just talking, it's a talk. You know, we got to bring some stats <laughs>
0: right. into
1: this podcast. So, right. and then,
0: can I mm-hmm. also add, like, if you want a more specific to your environment um i don't know if if you or people are aware of school report cards report cards the office of civil rights also um, collects data of detention from school systems because that's one of the main ways that children are incarcerated or Mm -hmm. found to be um considered delinquent is through how they are uh, penalized from the school system so a lot of times, um, it breaks that data down as far as, like you said, with, um, their ethnicity, whether or not they have, a, a IEP or some type of, um, disability, as well as, um, what they're being, um, penalized for are they being kicked out of school are they being arrested um, how often law enforcement's being called so um, you can go on your school's website the school district's website and your school should have a report card that kind of um, breaks that data down specifically for your area as well
1: it's great information and it kind of defeats that old adage where it says kids will be kids because even what mm. they do as kids can follow you as an adult right
0: Exactly. That's why I, I, even though we're talking about juvenile delinquency being a generational cu- uh, curse, I would want to reframe it to even say like the criminalization of juveniles because the whole delinquency thing is, is based off of discretion. You know, it's based off of how we view or identify children because of punitive practices when it's also, it's really that we're criminalizing them just for being kids.
1: Hmm. Advocate Ashley's in the building (laughs) Always So so one of the things That you brought up to me was Breaking down school to prison nexus Mm -hmm. Can you Expound on that
0: Yeah so um, you may be familiar with the term School to prison pipeline And it's it's along the same lines of the pipeline Um, It's just that the pipe The people started going towards the words Nexus because a pipeline Kind of indicates that children are being funneled through like a school system, um, you know, into prison, whereas, Mm. um, you know, not all schools are funneling children, you know, or putting them in that type of carceral, um, state or mentality, suburban children or, um, fully funded schools, they don't have the same type of so-called pipeline. So the nexus is Thinking about the connections and the interconnections of oppression and how schools interact, how they have the same type of um, prison or carceral element of a prison um, that, you know, affects or impacts children. So that's that's what the school-to-prison nexus is, is kind of thinking of institutions that children are involved in and how they kind of mimic the elements of a prison system. I mm. so, understand. Uh, okay yeah and to just i guess um break that down even more the elements that we would see in a school is things like detention or isolation or um being you know kicked out so like it's kind of like those same types of elements that kind of um, dress code always having an id not having any rights in the school so principals or school officials can kind of search you at any time or search your belongings at any time like you know all of those types of prison or carceral elements um is what is mimicked in institutions that should be used to educate our children and so that's what that school to prison nexus is considered to be finding those connections
1: you know once you said that i started thinking about my own high school experience right Mm -hmm. and i wasn't a problem child at all so or didn't get really any trouble so i didn't really have i never got suspended from school but i've done iss one time yeah. and that was conspiracy but anyway <laughs> the one time i did do iss i was like yeah i can't do this because we couldn't talk yeah <laughs> didn't really let us sleep it was true isolation and we had work to do and we were done like it really it really felt like I don't know, it it, it messes with you because you're thinking, okay, it's lunchtime, right, but it's only second period because time goes by so slow, you're not doing anything. You're counting time. (laughs) (laughs) So that that makes sense. So for kids who always are in ISS or get suspended, in a way, they're so used to that behavior, so when they get to the real world, they say, well, you know what, I can just adjust to this, even though there's nothing humane or should be normal about going to prison. But that's kind of already been placed in their mindset
0: exactly or even for children who are already incarcerated like what does that do to you as a child to have to already live in an environment like that because you messed up, because you're a child, and then now you have to be kind of reintegrated into society as you're dealing with adolescence, how do you not go back into, you know, prison? Like, it's gonna be twice as hard to get you out of that mind state when it's already embedded in you from being incarcerated.
1: Absolutely, because especially in your adolescence, right, a lot of things are very, well, so in a lot of ways, when you're younger, I'm an adolescent, you're very impressionable. So mm-hmm. what you think is reality is not that, but it shapes your mind that it is. So yeah. as teenagers, self-image is very important to us at that time, right? So what could be reality that, hey, um, for me to 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 attract someone, I have to do this or do this. To your point, to a kid, they can say, well, reality is, this is it being incarcerated, right? I've always been bad, I'm always gonna be it, so this is exactly. this is it, so I can understand how that can factor in, and if it's not really remedied in a in a different manner, that's gonna follow them, and it's like you look at the end result, but you don't look at the beginning, the context of why they're like that, why the mind state is like that,
0: yeah. yeah. Exactly. Damn. It definitely impacts your identity as well as your socialization because you, everybody knows in prison, like you have to condition yourself to be, you know, around certain people. You have to find your click, so to speak, you know, for protection or for, you know, to get your needs met. And so when you if you get out of that um, and come back into society, you're you're doing the same thing. You need to click up with people and versus, you know, standing in your own identity because that was kind of taken away from you.
1: Right. Kind of. Thanks. It kind of reminds me of this term. I hear certain people use uh, people not being built for prison. Or someone mm-hmm. saying, yeah, I'm built for prison. Like, what does that really mean, though? Yeah. Like, we thought that was cool to think about, well, as a guy, I thought that it was cool. Because, you know, how hip-hop can influence you. And I blame hip-hop. But, you know, when you're younger, anything you hear celebrities may say or do, mm-hmm. you might think it's cool. And you think about, like, what does that really mean, being built for prison? Because in prison, you're not treated like a civilian. So, yes.
0: yeah.
1: what exactly are you being built for? Yeah. A celebrity's supposed to be over um i think about that and even on representation and this might be slightly deviating but um if you can follow me advocate ashley i'm trying to make this point <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you remember movies back in the days about prison i'm saying back in the day because it is for us like <laughs> prison song or the lock, uh, lockdown movie by master p prison was positioned in different manner of like the pros and the cons and it's not, it wasn't really glamorized. The pros, but I mean by pros, the pros of those movies were if you get in trouble, you get involved in this, this movie is a small taste of how terrible it can be. Yeah. The cons of it can be someone who's already been incarcerated as a youth will feel like, well, that's just the reality. And, and instead of it being like, you know, that sad to look at or a therapeutic moment, you're looking at it as a badge of honor, right? But when, yeah. I, when I think about the mind state, I think about this movie, Prison. Have you ever seen a movie Prison Song? It had Q-Tip, Master, um not Master P, Q-Tip, Mary J. Blige, Fat Joe came yeah. out like in two thousand.
0: Yeah, I do remember. I, do, I vaguely remember it, but I think I know what you're talking about.
1: So I think it's on Netflix now. But I used to watch it on BET. And Q-Tip's character, you know, he, he, he got involved in group homes and he, now he's in prison. I remember he said to his childhood friend who's been incarcerated since a youth, he's like, yo, I don't belong in here. But his friend didn't have the same type of mentality because he's been incarcerated since he was a child. Mm-hmm. But like, what is his life? So I don't know. It made me think of that for some reason. Yeah.
0: And then also, um, I know we're thinking about how... The person, the juvenile, or the person incarcerated internalizes um, that carceral state. But we also think about need to think about like the labeling afterwards. So especially, you know, we know prisoners, adult or juveniles, once you've been there, that's that's kind of what everybody sees. Your options are limited. You're, you know, getting a job, getting um, housing. If especially if you have to, um, you know, get government housing or any or um, and be under the housing authority. Or Mm -hmm. if you do get arrested, again, you know, judges or prosecutors are looking at that record and already they don't care if it was a mistake or what happened. They just they just know that this is on your record and you're deemed a bad person, um, you know, once that's once you've done that. So society also looks at you differently coming out. So how. And so, like we said, a child is navigating development in adolescence and. Now they also have to deal with that kind of labeling. So, of course, you know, their identity is just like, well, this is how it's going to be. Then I'm, I'm going to act like how you guys treat me.
1: Right. Absolutely. And we're going to use that to transition to the next point, which is law enforcement in elementary and middle school. And this has been debated for quite some time, but in, in recent memory, I think it's at a, a different height especially when a couple of years ago where that police officer, I believe was Helen, this young black girl, and she was sitting at her desk and he literally like dragged her from the desk. Um, before then, this was always debated, but now on social media and classrooms, you're seeing this type of behavior. So in regards to law enforcement in elementary and middle school, what is your take on that? And did you experience the law enforcement when you were in school?
0: Oh yeah, twice Um, So my take is that Law enforcement does not need to be In schools Um, There are I believe that the SROs The funding for SROs to be in a school Is at least like At least a million dollars I don't know the exact number I thought I had it somewhere But um, the school, Pretty much school or the federal government Or the um, state government Is funding for SROs to be in um, in schools, and we have cops in schools where there are no social workers, there are no counselors, there are no nurses. So we're we're funneling our money to police children versus having their needs met. And um, oh my gosh, I had like stats. I I know that in the U.S. specifically, 1.7 million schools have cops inside, have cops um, station staffed as a part of this school, but there are no counselors, nurses, social workers. Um, And so we think about how that, how cops are being used for de-escalation when they're not trained to de-escalate in a manner that's not violent. We have, we just thought um, how, the young lady I, I believe her name was Makai forgive me I, I'm drawing a blank with her name how she was um, shot by the cop for a time in, in her home like that's the only de- de-escalation tactics that cops really use is violence whereas you know, if there's a trauma or if there is, you know, a mental health issue, that there are skilled people who have the the skills and the ability to kind of calm that person down or de-escalate the situation. We have teachers who face children with weapons all the time and they don't and, and they don't have guns. You know, teachers don't have are not armed and they are they're able to de escalate as well as, you know, people in group homes. DSS goes to people's houses without, you know, weapons, well at least in South Carolina. You know, so it's like there's other methods and there's other ways, especially when it comes to children. Children should not first of all, no cops should be shooting anybody, um, unless for you know, and I wouldn't even say I'm not even gonna go into that whole debate, but Specifically for our children, at the least you could do is not harm, tackle, fight them like they're an adult because you're trying to be under the guise of de-escalation. So um, as far as your question, my experiences with cops. So one, I was a part of the Stratford drug raid where they came in, you know, <laughs> like guns blazing on a bunch of innocent children because they suspected potential drug um Drug distribution, distribution, and it's just like they tied our hands. They locked, you know, they slammed a lot of our friends, our peers, to the ground as if we were already criminalized. And then um, another instance was my teacher so I was like, "You, I had ISS like maybe one time I was not a problem child, <laughs> and so um, but I I we had a teacher who was having a bad day, and he came in the classroom kind of arguing with us, and um, but then he got to the lesson and so how much I was a student who, even if I know the answer is right, like sometimes I'll mumble it under my breath if I'm not sure. And so I mumbled something, and he thought I said something smart. he thought I was making fun of him. He was sitting behind me, so he didn't see me, but he heard something come out of my mouth. And he just went off and started yelling at me to get out the class. And I was just like, I'm not leaving the class. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. You're tripping. You know, that's type." And he called the cops on me to come escort me off the class. Like, and I was literally sitting in my desk. All I did was whisper an answer to the question, but because he didn't hear it, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like that police that not even policing with that overly punitive discretionary methods so that was up to his discretion to kick me out of the classroom but it was just like If the police had really believed them or believed that I was a threat and they came in like tackling me or tasing me or, you know, something like that, just because they refused to deescalate. Or if I was a child who had like a a mental health or issue or just got really upset because you're accusing me because children do that. They if you accuse them of something they're not doing or call them a liar, sometimes they will get aggressive or they they will turn up. And, And so if that was the case, if I wasn't calm and then the police came in, the law, our SRO came in, I would have been criminalized, not the adult who should have been the person de-escalating the situation. Um, so yeah, those were my two experiences with law enforcement in school.
1: You know, when you brought brought the Stratford drug bus, I actually was going to mention that because that's what I thought about, not knowing you were a part of that. <laughs> and I remember that was a huge thing.
0: And yeah, so that happened yeah. like
1: around 04,
0: yeah, 04, I think. I, or
1: was I senior? I think it was 05. Yeah, I remember that was like, it was all over Channel 5, mm-hmm. and there was a little bit of footage out there. Um, I'm going to touch, touch on, of course, everything else you said, but in regards to that, do you remember the blowback from that afterwards?
0: oh yeah i mean they did um settle they had a lawsuit and they settled for all of all of the students who um were impacted who were in the in that hallway that was our main hallway in the morning um mm-hmm. so they did it was like a small well it was different settlements based off of what happened to you so for the children who were trying to go to class and were slammed to the ground or thrown against the wall um they had a bigger settlement and then for the other children in it, it it literally was like they came in with Weapons drawn um, at us, and like if we said, like us not knowing what's happening, what's going on, it's like if we moved or if we said anything, asked a question, or tried to explain where we we're going, immediately we, we were hogtied and pushed to the ground, to the wall. So it was, it was like a no questions asked, no nothing, don't move, don't say anything. Like everybody was already guilty.
1: Um, type of thing, but yeah, so they did face they did settle a lawsuit for that. Hmm. And I want to kind of tell tell my side in regards to law enforcement in school because at in middle school, I definitely experienced that. You know, growing up in a huge area and going to Koi Middle, a lot of our staff members are people in the community, um, the teachers, janitors, and the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. May have been your cousin, your aunts, your uncles, your church members. So policing was a little different because it was literally a community based situation. Yeah. So fast forward, like, and to your point, right? De escalation. Definitely need definitely didn't need, need any weapons. Nine times out of ten, you just needed a football coach or something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Like that's all you
1: that's all you really needed. And to your credit, some woman you know, some women teachers, they can ha- they can de escalate very well. Yes. You have to worry about that. But fast forward in high school, which I went to Hanahan High School, and um, we did have a a law enforcement or security guard, um, Officer Officer Patterson, which um, I never had any issues with him at all. And when I saw him de-escalate, I personally didn't see him de-escalate in a manner that was inappropriate or excessive. But it did show the difference, right? Because we were used to either like staff members howling but now we have a police uniform walking around so right. it was a little intimidating at first like oh okay this is this is high school I guess um wow. but you know for the most part I didn't I didn't see anything excessive to that nature and we still had other staff members um I'm not going to name anymore we had somewhere some nice wrestling moves for a couple of fights <laughs> You know, but for anybody who went to hand hand with me, and I got a couple of listeners. You know what I'm talking about. Certain graphics <laughs> teacher, he definitely was a WWE fan in <laughs> <of> some sort. <laughs> but I want to also mention about the budget that you referred to for law enforcement. So that budget to include law enforcement is that part of the budget that goes towards the school system, or that, is that included with like? The budget of law enforcement, like the police district in general, or is that go towards the
0: school? Um, and I'm trying to. I knew I wrote it down for this conversation, but I cannot find on my notes. But I so from my understanding, it's the educational. It comes out of educational funding because okay. um, schools can fund. Like I said. They can choose to fund nurses or school counselors or um, social workers, but they're putting funding towards the SRO in the school.
1: Got it. Okay. So it's it's more so of the district school leader's choice on where they put the funding in.
0: Correct. And they're paying the they're paying that police department.
1: Got it. Okay. Got it. So that also <laughs> Kind of how it goes full circle, right? Because we had episodes yeah. of redlining, me and you together, yeah. and uneducated voting. All that plays a part that we we see a pattern here.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned something very important as well. well. Everything you said was important, but in terms of, instead of de-escalation, we're spending so much money on policing. And when <laughs> it comes to policing, you made the point of community oversight, versus arrest can you elaborate on that
0: yeah so um i mentioned earlier how there is data so the office of civil rights um which is a federal office um has um is who does these data reports for schools and runs the school report cards on how children are being um policed schools should also be collecting data on their disciplinary um, measures so i know for charleston county they have um there's a particular tool so every time a child is has an infraction they have to notify what type of infraction it is whether it's like hit kick push whether it's just disrupting school or um you know a status offense which is truancy or um running skipping class or something like that so um or rude or you know saying something to the teacher that's rude so they have kind of like a level system and then what happens is um Depending on how many infractions it is, is how it moves up the chain. So, this the data system that Charleston County uses it inputs all that information for each child. It also has in there if that child has an IEP or if they have a 504 plan. And I keep bringing up the IEP and 504 plan because this the children who have either um, a specific diagnosis there is that lets you know that they are. Functioning differently than a typical child in the school, a neurotypical child in a classroom. So that teacher has to adhere to their um, their um, diagnoses. They have to adhere to their plan. the The disparity comes in not only racially, but also because these children are the teachers are not willing to deal with the, that particular ch- child or make exceptions or modifications for that particular child. It's too difficult. It's too much. Sometimes the, ch- the classrooms are overcrowded. And um, there's more than one child with a diagnosis, and more than one accommodation that needs to be made for that teacher. So it's you know it's hard all across the board. So therefore, when I talk of, when I think about uh, oversight committee, it's someone, a group of people. There should be um, an agency or a committee that's not district wide. That's not like it's a it's a community committee. It's something where a layperson can look at this and say, hey this same teacher is writing up these same children and they're not adhering to this um, this modification this mental health modification which is a violation of that child's civil rights and so this teacher needs to have some type of anti-bias training this teacher needs to have some type of de-escalation training um, specifically so kind of like this committee should be Outside of the school board, outside of the, dis- the school district, because, you know, if you work for the school district, you're going to come from a place of understanding and compassion for the teachers. And mm-hmm. you're going to look at the children as how they are identified as delinquent, constantly written up, constantly making infractions, constantly disrupting class. And everybody's kind of just ignoring, um, you know, their their mental health diagnoses which is why we need as, um, not SROs, but school counselors more, or more social workers to determine you know, what's really going on. So um, all that, and I, I'm just using the IEP as an example, but all that to say like there are children's rights are being violated based off of discipline as well as their mental health condition and schools are not meeting their basic needs. And so there needs to be oversight to look at how children are being disciplined why they're being disciplined and how often we're pushing them out of schools we already know that there's a racial disparity so when we the amount of children that are in alternative schools that's an even higher disparity that's going to be predominantly black and brown children in alternative education um so, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking about when I think about an oversight committee. There needs to be um, someone looking into this in actually implementing a plan, um, not just for teachers, but from the principal, from a district, in how they are, in a sense, policing children.
1: Got it, so it's like an independent governing body. Yeah. Where they can give an unbiased examination of everything and then provide the proper techniques or recommendations on how to assist with a child, especially if they have certain certain rights that's being violated because you have a certain bias, because if you're in a district, of course you're going to adhere to the teacher.
0: Right, and then also what you said about how in middle school it was it was mainly community um, in, within your school like that's another like let's let these people be community members because they know these children you know they know or they know what's available in the community they're a part of the community that may be able to assist that family or these children so they have so sometimes community have uh, members have a a more broader creative way of how to interact or make an impact with children versus what teachers may have time for or what the school may be willing to do so sometimes that needs to come from the outside in um and you know children if if they're a part of that community and they're you know they see that community member who they probably already have a relationship with or they respect they might be more willing to you know adhere or you know uh, be compliant with any type of change that needs to happen or even be more open and trust that community member more than they trust the school
1: Absolutely, and to that point, because you're correct, from head start all the way into middle school, that's how it was because we had our own elementary and middle school, but we had high school as well. But the point I was going to make on why I think that has been made more difficult for community um, relations in regards to schooling, is how, so, especially in Charleston counties and Berkeley county, schools in Charleston in general, uh, probably the whole state of South Carolina maybe, where they move they move and close schools and merge them with other schools in different mm-hmm. areas so much. Um, Cause that's what happened in our community because we had a K-Wai high school, but then it merged with, depending on what side of a future k area you're in, you were either going to Hanahan or you were going to Timberland. Yeah. So now you're being place aside, and I'm sure but so many records of that child was transferred with them. So now the child is in a whole new environment. Um, And how they're treated, especially if there's a certain stereotype on the area that they came from, it's going to be a whole different situation. That's why I think your recommendation of an independent governing body, like a community outreach, will be so effective. But the only reason why I say that being difficult because when you say community, probably through title, but it's hard for the, like being in Hugee, growing up in Hugee, and Hanahan is across the bridge. It's hard for the Hugely community to really step in because just to even get to that school on time, we had to get up like at five in the morning and catch the bus. So now mm-hmm. we're, our parents and our everyone that had our back in middle school and elementary. Not only does it probably take off work to intervene in such a manner. But right, they have to go right. even across the 526 bridge to even get the head ahead.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times these don't have to be done in the school. So for instance, like the school board, um, for well, I'll use Charlton County as an example. They have disciplinarian um, meetings. So if a mm-hmm. child has isn't at risk of being yeah. placed in an alternative school or being um, expelled, then um, they may have one or one or two uh, people that would come to the meeting from that child's neighborhood. But for the oversight, um, and so and then the school board would have to make the decision um, as far as whether that child would be recommended for it to be alternatively placed or to fully be expelled. But for I think for a community oversight to kind of navigate through the issue you're describing of what schools merging, if we're the oversight committee doesn't have to be in the school. They can review the information, like th- those types of conferences could happen w- in the community. I fully believe that um, schools It's not about, I, I have a real problem with schools always requesting parents and community members to come to their their you know playing field <laughs> instead right. of them coming to like the community center in our neighborhood or right. you know meeting the parents at their homes you know so to speak at the parent wants that but it's, right. it's always like come come to us and if you can't make it to us then this meeting won't happen versus like no you are you are the institution that should be helping and then and you should be coming to their neighborhood so the oversight committee could happen individually and then, you know, coming collectively to make a decision on different parts in the community that could happen. Maybe this child, you know, needs like a mentor program in the after school in their community or, you know, be paired with, uh, with somebody, you know, for whatever infraction it is in their community. So it's not so much of it happening in the school. It's more of this is an independent organization reviewing the information reviewing what's happening and then making re- recommendations to the school
1: absolutely got it yeah and i just wanted to um and i'm sure that's where you were getting at anyway but i wanted to just introduce that point yeah because i know there are some people not not only from HUJI, but um you always see you know a lot of schools either shutting down or because of the zip code they moved to another area. So I wanted to make sure you spoke to that point as well. So in case someone had that, or what about this, that you could address it in that fashion, which is a great idea because that has been an issue. And not just, I've heard in other states where people go through where it's like, no, come to the school. And it's like, if we can't come to your environment, you're too good to come to our stomping grounds. It's disgusting. So the second thing I want to ask, like. Because I do have uh, quite a bit of friends who are teachers. Um, let's speak to what their concerns would be, right? Yeah, because yeah. some teachers, they would say, maybe a lot of teachers, I don't have any stats, but this is just how, oh, you know, some of them think about it. How would the parents come into play in all of this, right? Like, what yeah. if it's a situation where the child doesn't really have, quote unquote, well, at least not a diagnosed mental issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're having all these infractions in school as we would call it and then when you try to have these pta meetings or these conversations even through a phone call with the parents um, they seem very they don't want to seem cooperative and assisting or not really as effective with trying to reach that child themselves you know some some parents have that mindset of look i got to go to work that's Mm -hmm. that's your problem you can't tell me about my child because it's your problem. You the parent now. <laughs> I'll I'll be the parent when I get him out of work or when he come home from the bus. Okay. So how do the parent come into this? Because I'm sure some teachers are thinking um, I agree with what you're saying, but how do how can we work with the student to de-escalating if they might come from an environment with so much turmoil and anger, and when we try to intervene in that, it might become a hostile situation. How do the parents come into effect with this?
0: right that's an awesome question let me tell you i have teacher friends as well and we get into high highly emotional debates about this Mm -hmm. um so i want to let me let your teacher friends know i am a child when i say i'm a child advocate i am a child advocate at heart (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i i but i completely get the concern about um parent involvement however my challenge to um teachers is that so one it's a valid point that parents are where they have to work they literally have to go to work some are single parents some have poverty issues some like it's all types of things going on and they really are highly stressed and don't have the time to deal with it um and probably would prefer that that the child could stay home some some parents like they would rather not deal with it but (laughs) by law they have to go to school right so it's, it's almost like that kind of meet the parent where they are and for me i would say like i would challenge teachers like build that relationship up front. Like you can't wait until the child's not listening to you or misbehaving to build that relationship. Like there's so many teachers and some, and I'm not gonna say all teachers because I I know teachers who do take that kind of extra effort to build a relationship with that child's family beforehand. Because Mm -hmm. if you're already built, like before school even starts, if you have your roster and you're like setting up um, you know, even with parent teacher meetings, I have went to parent teacher meetings and tried to ask these teachers questions and get to know them. And I'm like rushed and funneled through. They're ready to get home, too. And so it's just like if you're building that relationship up front and not only talking about the child when something's wrong, but hey, let me I'm just reaching out to say, you know what? Sasha, she made such a great point in class. I just want to let, let you know that she's she's an awesome student to have in class. Not waiting to report cards to say that, but starting to build that relationship in the beginning with that parent so that they have you know that kind of um, dialogue with you. And so when then something is going wrong or there is an issue in class, you already have an open dialogue with this parent and you already kind of know as far as their schedule or the best way to communicate with them. I tell my my kids' teachers all the time, like, the best way to reach me is through email. They will call me and leave voicemails. I don't check voicemails. They will send letters. I don't move about four different times. Like, <laughs> I tell them, I give them, I explain it to them. We filled out thousands of paperwork at the beginning of the class every year telling you exactly how to contact me and who's my second contact. They never, ever use it. they rather send a letter. And so I, I know that it's hard, and I know it's like, that's an extra step as a part of their job but I definitely would say like I, I feel like I truly believe that if you start that relationship with the parent in the beginning as well as not only reaching out to the parent when something's wrong but also kind of like just building a dialogue with that parent to kind of let them know what's going on sometimes they may not respond and, and this may not work for every parent but I think that teachers have to get out the mindset of Parents are just, they just don't care about how their child's doing or they just don't care about or, you know, don't want to deal with them, whatever the case may be. They may be highly stressed. And that's why your advocacy should not be on the parent, what the parent is doing, but more so on, I need support from my school. My class is overcrowded. This child is struggling. I need a school social worker. I need a school counselor. You know, and I, I, there's issues with that as well because teachers can't always advocate You know, because that's their job and that's their job security. But Mm -hmm. I feel like um, there's always going to be that kind of push and pull. Teachers blame parents sometimes, and parents blame teachers a lot of times. And it's just like the common ground. I think is to begin from the start that dialogue in the beginning.
1: Great point. Great point. Yeah, I just wanted you to speak to that, and that's that's you made some a lot of valid points, and I agree. Try to build that rapport early on because. Of course, the the parents who who have kids who are not being, you know, in behavioral issues or having mm-hmm. good grades, they don't mind hearing from the, the teacher because that's the positive reinforcement. Yeah. But you're not gonna feel like that if I don't even I don't unless the, the child is bragging or complaining about the teacher. You don't know anything about the teacher until it's to give you more bad news. You probably ain't got like five bills already today.
0: Yeah, exactly. And now you call and Now you call day.
1: it. Yep.
0: you had a bad day at work with your own supervisor, like you don't have, you probably just don't want to deal with it or, you know, like you just never know what's going on. And I just, I feel like, again, and I can't really suggest this to teachers because I get it. That's your job. You're there to teach. You're not there to be, you know, a savior. You're not there to like, you know, push boundaries, but I feel like be a support for the family. Get to the root cause of what's happening with this child is if this child just has issues with you, then that's that needs to be like a a community or a meeting in the school. And it doesn't have to. And then again, stop trying to meet the parent or make the parents come to you. They have to take time off from work to talk to you. They have to talk when they finally get a break from work to, you know, to answer the phone or talk to you. Sometimes you have to meet the parent where they are or, you know, try to call them after hours or have somebody call them after hours um, so that or or f- figure out what's a good, what's a better way to reach them. It's just it's just a lot of I think we come from a place of I need to provide support. I'm not just trying to tell your child, then um, there would be a better dialogue between p- ter- parents and teachers.
1: All right, Because if you build that relationship in the beginning, you could kind of gauge the kind of audience you're speaking to so you know how to identify of how to project that message to where the parent understands that you're not just another person that's trying to give me bad news you're trying to assist
0: exactly and let me tell you covid has opened up my I might so my kids virtual school and <clears throat> i i pray my my child's teacher's not listening but i see <laughs> what he does and i see what she does and so and so one, my child is a, a child who has a diagnosis um, and he will lose attention and lose focus very quickly. So we have a plane and she takes she takes like 30 minute breaks on virtual like it'll be take a 10 minute break and they be waiting. You, you can't do that with my child because when he comes back, he's not thinking about school. It's going to take a, a minute to refocus him. So like I like now that I see how what happens virtually, it may not happen like this in, in, you know, in person school. But it's just like you can't don't. I know what my child does and I know what you do, too. I hear you yelling at these kids. I hear you not. You haven't even built a. Hey, good morning. How was your weekend? You haven't built nothing. It's like straight get to work, you know, log and get to work. Like, but you expect these kids to just jump at the ready. Like you haven't like built a relationship with even the children. So and again, that's that's just one example of one teacher. But I'm just I'm just <laughs> saying, like, <laughs> right. You know, like teachers, it, it can't only be the Complaining about the students. We know you're overworked. We know the classrooms are overcrowded. We know that you don't have a lot of support in, in the school system. Um, but we have to do something better than pushing the kids out or trying to make trying to convenience yourself by at the at the expense of that child's education.
1: Advocate Ashley's in the building. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we, the next point that you brought up to me was youth court programs. Yes. Now, me being sports centric, of course, my <laughs> mind went a whole different way. I was like, "Oh, we doing basketball tournaments? This is it going to help?" <laughs> I love that idea. No. But I'm sure that's not what poli- the political princess is talking about. So, can you expound on that as well?
0: Sure. So, um, youth youth court is a diversion program. So, as we're thinking about children. And the type of punitive practices that schools has. And again, like we understand, I understand that juvenile delinquency or children being criminalized happens outside of school. But if you look at the data from um, DJJ, most of the it starts from in school, it starts from them being targeted in schools and having those punitive practices or being expelled or having out of school suspensions that leads to this carceral state of juveniles so that's why i'm kind of focusing on schools so anyway um we talked about how law enforcement you know their de-escalation practices are mainly violent versus actually trying to find a solution um but we know children are not perfect they're developing and they're growing so there's going to be fights there's going to be substance use there's going to be school disruptions and so we need to figure out ways that doesn't Incarcerate them or push them out of school that um, allows them to kind of be restored or have a better relationship with their educational environment. Um, so, all that being said, is Youth Court is a diversion program, and um, I was a part of it in Stratford. And it was actually the teacher who called the law enforcement officer on me um, who did um, that, ran this program. And mm. so, um, but I love the program even though um, I felt very betrayed by him, as well as the officer, because the officer who came is the officer who was a part of this program. Um, However, the program itself (laughs) was pretty much, um, we were in Goose Creek, um, in Goose Creek Courthouse, because um, the officer, our SRO was a part of the Goose Creek Police Department. They allowed us to have, we're our, the students were the whole court. So we were, I was an attorney, I was a judge, I was the bailiff, um, along with my class. So our my entire class, we were all parts of the court system. So if there was a fight in, that happened in school, if a child had a permit or a driver's license and got a ticket, whatever the minor infraction was, um, it, they and they did not have any type of um, juvenile, they weren't already incarcerated prior if they didn't have any priors, then um, they were admitted to come to youth court. So the parent could say yes or no. Uh, most parents said, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but it was it was very serious and it was very official. Um, and so we were allowed to use the courtroom and to hold our, our cases for misdemeanors. And so what that did is it prevented, it allowed it to not be in a child's record for whatever happened, the assault would not be in a child's record, Um, Or, you know, whatever other infraction it was, and we had to develop our own sentencing. And so our sentencing was something other than them going to jail, of course, or them having something on their record. So it would be some type of however long community service or a specific You know type of restorative justice practice where they had to rectify or write a letter you know to the um to the victim so to speak um so things like that is it's pretty much just a court completely run by the youth actually being judged by your peers um and that and it was an official thing and so i think that if that program was you know more widespread um and not to say like nobody would re redo any type of infraction but i feel like you should it shouldn't be like an adult process you're still a child you're still developing and you can face like this type of court system if it has to be a court system i personally would recommend like a restorative justice um so that you can meet with you're like if it's a fight you can meet with the person who you're fighting and do either counseling or restorative justice which is pretty much your um the victim determines what the restitution would be
1: I really love the idea of that
0: Yeah, and
1: you're right if that was more widespread not only does that sound exceptional but it actually sounds kind of fun for the youth as well depending on what side you're on yeah
0: Um, well we were on all we got a chance to be on all sides and um it was actually because I used to want to be a lawyer for until since I was seven until high school this program made me feel like I no longer wanted to be a lawyer actually
1: oh wow (laughs)
0: So we got got experience, though we got to look at law, look up laws. Um, So it it was helping us, you know, professionally, but it was also for the youth, the um, so-called offenders, to kind of look at what it would be like in a court setting, you know.
1: I truly feel if a lot of schools had that freedom to incorporate programs like that, and not just for this topic, but just in general you'd be surprised how that can stay with a child
0: Mm -hmm. and can assess
1: them as they get older. Because as you were talking about that, I actually was thinking about this process back in third and fourth grade that my school did. So we used to do like letters, right? Like write letters. You could send it to classmates. You could send it to teachers. And you actually had to apply to be a part of that. So in one grade period, you actually work at the little in school post office.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you, you do the interview, you can play you can be the mailer, you could be the, the one who put the stamp on the envelope, yep. things of that nature. And it really did set you up as a job interviewer. They ask you questions like how many days do you miss school? I was like, no, I never miss school. I was like what well, I, I remember my answer, I was like, Oh no, I always had perfect attendance like so at the chicken pox. So <laughs> I always been pretty prompt. Like <laughs> but programs like that I I really like love the sound of that, and I think a lot of reason too because I wouldn't think that'll would be heavy on the budget. But I think a lot of schools don't you don't have that programming yeah. um, liberties to do that, or it just so many people that's in leadership that just focus on guidelines. We don't have enough creative to really like buck the system, not in a bad way, but like buck the system in terms of you know what. Let's find a different way of doing this to get to the same result of success.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, that came from one of our juvenile judges along with the school. So like it was implemented with the um, juvenile court judge as well as our that particular school. And then um, like you were saying, shoot, I lost my train of thought. Um, Oh I was going to say Along with that program like you were saying As far as the skills that we kind of had to Go through and the process like for That we had to be sworn to Confidentiality as you know 11th graders and 12th graders like we were like already having to deal with how to keep information confidential and not talk to our friends about who's coming to court or you know what happened in court and things like that so yeah I, I completely agree with you like the thing that's what school should be it should be helping us to develop our skills professional skills our strengths in our areas of opportunities helping us to try things as well as allowing us the opportunity to be a child and mess up but also be you know restored or think about the impact from other peers not from another adult saying hey this is wrong but other children saying hey like This is how you disrupted school. This is how you, you know, impacted the school with your fight. Um, You know, all these types of things. So it's like it's coming from your peers and you're having to develop, you know, plan an argument. So, yes, it definitely teaches them a lot of skills.
1: Definitely something to look into and kind of it's like a good segue to our last point but one of the more important points, which is the action part, right? We got, we raised the awareness, we brought the history, the, the stats. Yeah. But for anyone that's listening to this right now, and I hope, even me, I'm thinking of some brainstorming in my own way. I hope people are really being inspired to like either create a program or to incorporate what you mentioned. But are anything, is there any active groups or initiatives that people can join now to be involved in if they don't have the resources or not quite sure how to start it? Is it something that's already established that they can join?
0: Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are specific programs for specific groups of children. So I know mm. Carolina Youth Action Project um, is particularly for girls, but it, it empowers girls to kind of fight Um not even fight but like kind of advocate for themselves you know within different institutions or the community so it's um you know the group of girls that's a part of the carolina youth action project they have um so to speak mentors that kind of help them develop language and develop you know um ideas of what's impacting them what's impacting the issues that's important to them um and how to how to advocate in schools or in the community and so um, that's like one example. there's also um the justice for black girls um because again, black girls are the main ones that are being incarcerated in juvenile um and juvenile um sorry, what's the d j j so i'll say d j Department of juvenile justice they're the uh, main ones being incarcerated and being pushed out of the classroom. Um, so they, there are projects, you know, to kind of help with sentencing or um, pro bono work. Um, but I would also say, I know you mentioned earlier with the community helping out, like time is a big factor for adults and it, it is really a sacrifice to make that time to, you know, spend, child, spend time with a child that's not yours. Um, I know where I work, the um, guard Child Advocacy Department I actually supervise volunteers um, for children who are going through um, family. They they have family or DSS family court involvement or DSS involvement. But um, like I said, I, I we get a lot of adolescent we get a lot of adolescent children who um, are having DJJ involvement. So being a mentor or be a mentor, um, those are very impactful for children because um, we need a lot more black mentors because those are our that's our children who are being targeted.
1: Right. Well another epic episode in the books <laughs> with the political princess. <laughs> Advocate Ashley. Oh my pleasure. Definitely appreciate you and I'm sure my followers and friends appreciate you. Um a lot of them have mentioned the episodes that we were on. One of someone recently just said that the Red liner episode was one of their favorites.
0: Oh wow. Oh my gosh. You're gonna make me blush.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, also shout out to some to one of my um fellow Hannah hand alumni, um, Jerica. Um, she she mentioned and she pushed my podcast. She was like, you know what, Ashley, that's my that's my girl right there, but she was yeah. killing
0: <laughs> I love Jerica, and I she has an awesome podcast as well. Um, yes, but yes, I, I appreciate your your listeners. I thank y'all for bearing with me because so half the time I be like I'm passionate. I talk from my heart more than my head, and <laughs> so a lot of times like um, I may not have like all the facts and figures, but I know the information. I can point you in the direction of, to do your own research. But um, I appreciate everybody bearing with me as I get out what I need to say.
1: <laughs> hey, and the message is moving. It's, it's, it's raw and it's uncut, but it's necessary.
0: Yeah, that's raw, uncut.
1: Right there, you go. So sometimes, what you need that time, especially in our communities, we just receive that better. Yeah. Honestly, um, especially in a world where we're trying to be silenced, or everything's so PC, and when I mean by PC, we don't have to be vulgar for it to right. be raw and unfiltered.
0: Right, exactly so, I am a Gullah Geechee descendant So I talk you how I write And, <laughs> and you're going to you get go. what you get
1: <laughs> There you go Hey, we out here
0: right? <laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't care who gets mad about it
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> So thank all my listeners um, For another episode Of The Message is Moving it's We break message. generation curses one day at a time Until next time it's message. Peace Peace It's Beat